Chapter 10, The Faking of Christian Doctrine. No one who has spent time with the letters of Paul can fail to be impressed by the sense of earnest urgency which motivates him. He is evidently waging a campaign for a cause which he considers to be supremely important. He speaks of himself as having been put in charge of a service, the business of spreading far and wide the gospel of salvation. It is a sacred duty which he must discharge at all costs. Acts 20 verse 24. His life task is to propagate the good news message about the kingdom of God. Acts 19, 8, Acts 20, verse 25, Acts 28, verses 23 and 31. This is information which he sees as the only information having absolute value. Without it, a man is perishing. With it, he is on his way to achieving the purpose for which he was born, the attainment of immortality in the coming kingdom as co-administrator with Jesus the Messiah. Paul made clear the nature of his commission in the first verses and at the conclusion of his letter to Romans. I quote, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. I note that that same term Gospel of God describes the same gospel preached by Jesus, Mark 1, verse 14, and by Peter, 1 Peter 4, verse 17. Paul uses the same phrase often, Romans 1, verse 1, Romans 15, verse 16, and 2 Corinthians 11, verse 7, and also in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 2, eight and nine so paul was set apart for the gospel of god he says the gospel which god promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of david according to the flesh and who was declared son of god with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, for his name's sake. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets. That's a quotation from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and Romans 16, verses 25 and 26. Anyone in search of the driving force behind the mission of Paul will find it clearly stated also in the book of Acts. In his parting speech to the Ephesian elders, Paul provides us with a number of revealing summary statements about his evangelism. He had, quote, solemnly testified to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God 
and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 20 verse 21. I note that Luke's record of Jesus' expectation of the church's ministry corresponds exactly with Paul's definition of his task. Quote, repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in Jesus' name. That's from Luke 24, verse 47. This entailed proclaiming the kingdom, as we find in Acts 20, verse 25. All of this, then, had been the heart of Paul's ministry. It could equally be called a solemn testifying to the, quote, gospel of the grace of God, Acts 20, verse 24. He then adds immediately a concise definition of the content of his preaching. It had been to, quote, herald the kingdom of God, Acts 20, verse 25, which was tantamount to, quote, declaring the whole purpose of God, Acts 20, verse 27. After warning that the purity of his message would be threatened, after his departure, by savage wolves interfering with the flock and, quote, speaking perverse things, Acts 20, verse 29 and 30, Paul again recommended the gospel as, quote, the message of grace able to build you up and give you the inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. You'll find that in Acts chapter 20, Verse 32, inheritance implied, of course, inheritance of the kingdom. Paul's definition of evangelism provides a much-needed corrective to modern gospel presentation. The strikingly simple fact is that his own message is grounded in the same facts as the message of the historical Jesus. While Jesus, quote, heralds God's gospel about the kingdom of God, Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, Paul, quote, heralds the kingdom of God as the whole counsel of God. The apostle has not abandoned the gospel as it fell from the lips of Jesus in favor of a gospel only about the death and resurrection of Christ. As nearly all contemporary evangelism tells us, if Luke makes one thing clear, it is that Jesus is the model of all true gospel preachers. Just as Jesus, as was his custom, quote, welcomed them and began speaking about the kingdom of God, Luke 9, verse 11, Paul is seen in Rome near the climax of his career, quote, welcoming all who came to him, heralding the kingdom of God, and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. That's Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. The continuity between Jesus and Paul's gospel is unmistakably clear and may be traced throughout Luke's report of the early church. Apostolic practice is uniformly to propagate the message about the kingdom. I note that this is not to say that there's not a wide variety in the way in which the message is conveyed, but the substance 
is unchanging. Not only did Jesus immediately resume concentrated discussion of the kingdom when he reappeared after his death, but Philip has the same evangelistic agenda. Luke provides what one might expect to be taken as a watchword for all subsequent evangelism. In a statement amounting to an early creed, I note that F.J. Badcock in the History of the Creeds refers to Acts 8.12 as an early creed, how different modern Christianity would be if this precious, simple formula for baptism had been retained. Acts 8.12 shows what kind of profession of faith preceded initiation into the church. A grasp of the kingdom of God was evidently the basis of biblical Christianity. Luke describes the work of Philip then as announcing the gospel about the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ. It is only when the people believe Philip who was preaching the gospel about the kingdom that they became candidates for baptism, both men and women. You find that in Acts 8 verse 12. Intelligent reception of the message about the kingdom is the sine qua non for becoming a Christian, exactly as Jesus had declared the message about the kingdom, Matthew 13, 19. Jesus then declared that same message to be the essential information which must pass from preacher to convert, the message which Satan recognized as the one vital key to salvation needing to be suppressed by any and every means. Luke 8, 12. The kingdom of God is evidently the goal of all Christian effort. I quote, It is through much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom. Acts 14, verse 22. The kingdom of God is the principal topic of Paul's, quote, speaking, reasoning, and persuading at Ephesus, according to Acts 19, verse 8. The kingdom of God is the one concept which best describes his whole ministry. Quote, explaining and solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them about Jesus. Acts 28, verses 23 and 31. This, again, sums up Paul's missionary effort, first to Jewish audiences and then equipped with, quote, this salvation, Acts 28, verse 28, the same kingdom message is preached to Gentiles, whom Paul expected would, quote, listen. Luke leaves him in Rome, quote, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence. Acts 28, verse 31. The evidence of Acts confirms what Paul stated to the Romans, that his own gospel was the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Romans 16, verse 25, meaning 
both the proclamation which Jesus had made as well as information about Jesus' death and resurrection. The gospel for Paul was indeed, quote, the message of the Messiah. I'm citing there Romans 10:17, which should be understood in harmony with Acts as the message of the kingdom which Jesus had also preached. That message of the kingdom was the stimulus of saving faith. Like Jesus, Paul regarded the kingdom message, including the message of the cross and the resurrection, as the essential tool of evangelism. It was nothing less than the divine creative word, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, effecting, as it became the driving force in human hearts, the new creation of immortals. The contemporary religious scene would appear nothing short of tragic to Paul. That the name of Christ could be appended to hundreds of different groups organized as separate fellowships would, however, confirm to him the remarkable accuracy of his own inspired predictions about the direction in which the church would go after his death. He had persistently warned of, quote, grievous wolves, Acts 20, verse 29, who, after his departure, would enter the church and scatter the sheep, and of a wholesale apostasy from apostolic teachings. He anticipated that members of the church would distort the message and attract a following. Acts 20, verse 30. This was a prospect which caused him the profoundest distress. He had admonished the church, quote, with tears, according to Acts 20, verse 31, to be aware that apostolic faith would survive only with a struggle against opposing perverted versions of the faith. There can be little doubt that Paul expected a suppression of the faith which he had struggled to preach. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote a letter urging the Christians of his own day, as to say toward the end of the first century, to contend earnestly for the faith which had been once and for all divinely communicated to the Christian believers. That's Jude verse 3. If earnest effort was required then to preserve the faith, how much more 2,000 years later? John the Apostle wrote to a certain Diotrephes who refused to accept the admonitions contained in the letter and was actually forcing real Christians out of the church. You'll find that in 3 John verses 9 and 10. A theological takeover was underway. A suppression of apostolic truth had begun even before the end of the first century. The malign spirit of Antichrist had already made its appearance. 1 John 2 verse 18, 1 John 4 verse 1, and 2 Thessalonians 
2 verse 7. It is not difficult to see that the New Testament Christianity was under constant attack from false religion. There were ministers masquerading as agents of Christ, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3 and 4, and verses 13 to 15. Individuals were upsetting the faith of inexperienced believers by proposing radically new teachings calculated to obscure the genuine faith. In Paul's own time, the majority were already falsifying the message. You'll find that in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 17. It was, quote, the many who were corrupting the word of God. Principally, this was to satisfy the demands of those who would not tolerate wholesome teaching, but chose to, and I quote, wander off after man-made fictions, 2 Timothy 4, verse 4. Paul himself, like Jesus before him, was viewed as a religious deceiver by rival practitioners of religion. He was opposed by false brethren, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 26, 2 Timothy 4, verse 14, and he was forsaken by close friends, 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. He was, quote, regarded as a phony, according to 2 Corinthians 6, verse 8. His response was to declare that the virulent spirit of Antichrist was already active, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. Paul was convinced that the deception already underway was a prelude to a final and massive confusion which would spell doom for those who had not, quote, received the love of the truth, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 8 to 10. Jesus had been no less preoccupied with the dangers of false teaching. He expressed doubts as to whether genuine Christian belief would even be found anywhere on earth by the time he returned. Luke 18, verse 8. He envisaged a situation at his return to establish the kingdom in which many would suffer bitter disappointment. There would be many who would protest that they'd been fully committed members of what they thought was the Christian church, only to find that their work of preaching and even their performance of miracles and exorcism in the name of Christ had never been recognized by Jesus. You'll find that in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, and Luke chapter 13, verses 23 to 30. Surely these must be some of the most challenging warnings ever uttered by a religious teacher. I quote, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? 
and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, quote, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's all in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. This aspect of the teaching of Christ ought to be profoundly disturbing. It tells us in no uncertain terms that God means to be taken seriously. He will not accept intellectual or moral carelessness from those who profess to follow him. He has declared the faith through his agents, the prophets and apostles, and expects every professing Christian to pay close attention to what he has said. Evidently, obedience to the words of Jesus is the criterion of success. Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27. Founding one's life on the teaching of the Messiah is the only insurance policy against the storms of opposition Christians will encounter. Worship based on human tradition has been pronounced invalid. Matthew 15, 7 to 9. No one therefore should risk taking his faith on trust from the denomination in which he happens to be born without careful inspection of its sources and teachings. The New Testament warns constantly that traps are laid for the Christian on every side. The picture of a world peopled with preachers who are wolves in sheep's clothing, Matthew 7 verse 15, Acts 20 verse 29, and with Satan's agents in the guise of angels of light masquerading as ministers of righteousness, 2 Corinthians 11 verses 13 to 15, this may seem fanciful, in the 20th and 21st centuries, but it cannot be denied that that is the environment in which the New Testament says a Christian must survive. Our failure to see the point of these biblical warnings may only be a measure of our blindness to the danger. We should not neglect the obvious indications in the New Testament that the apostles and Jesus himself expected a large-scale departure from the original faith to occur in generations subsequent to their own. I refer you there to 1 John 2, verses 18 and 19. John is writing at a time when Paul's prediction in Acts 20, verse 29 and 30 had come true. The apostles give no promise whatsoever that the faith would become comfortably settled. Rather, they envisage an apostasy continuing unabated. The apostolic view of the future is, so to speak, telescoped, in the sense that it gives prominence to the principal events which are expected to occur without clarifying the span of time unknown to Jesus and the apostles, according to Mark 13, verse 32, and Acts 1, verse 7. The span of time was not known, needed 
for the fulfillment of the promises of the second coming. The arrival of the Messiah to reign with the church is, of course, the dominant expectation of the early church. 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, Luke chapter 21, verses 31, and so on. But comparable in significance is the expectation of a widespread departure from the truth of the divine message and the appearance on the world scene of a human individual in whom all the characteristics of false religion are concentrated. He's pictured as a dreadful caricature of the Messiah himself. He arrogates to himself divine titles, establishes himself in a temple, and claims to be God. His sudden appearance as a messianic pretender in some dazzling way, aping the second coming of Jesus, is accompanied by delusive miracles, supernatural feats calculated to fool those who have not come to understand that Satan is able to mimic the very power of God. The success of Satan's mission to deceive will be a just judgment upon those who have not previously come to love the truth or the divine message. They will therefore be lured into believing a lie. It is the Garden of Eden tragedy all over again. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3. Paul could have given us no greater reason for grasping the truth while there is yet time. The Apostle's view of the dark future before the arrival of the kingdom is given to us in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 14. I quote, And now, what about the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to meet him? Please don't be upset and excited, dear brothers and sisters, by the rumor that this day of the Lord has already begun. If you hear of people having visions and special messages from God about this, or letters that are supposed to have come from me, do not believe them. Don't be carried away and deceived, regardless of what they say. For that day will not come until two things happen. First, there will be a time of great rebellion against God, and then the man of rebellion will come, the son of destruction. He will defy every god there is and tear down every other object of adoration and worship. He will go in and sit as God in the temple of God, claiming that he is God himself. Don't you remember that I told you this when I was with you, and you know who is keeping him from being here already, for he can come only when his time is ready. As for the work this man of rebellion and destruction will do when he comes, it is already going on, but he himself will not come until the one who is holding him back 
steps out of the way. And then this wicked one will appear, whom the Lord Jesus will burn up with the breath of his mouth and destroy by his presence when he returns. This man of sin will come as Satan's tool, full of satanic power, and will trick everyone with strange sights and will pretend to do great miracles. He will completely fool those who are on their way to destruction because they have said no to the truth. They have refused to believe it and love it and let it save them. So God will allow them to believe those lies with all their hearts, and all of them will be justly judged for believing falsehood, refusing the truth, and enjoying their sins. But we must forever give thanks for you, our brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because God chose you from the very first to give you salvation, cleansing you by the work of the Holy Spirit and by your trusting in the truth. Through us, he told you the good news. Through us, he called you to share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's from 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 14, as translated in the Living Letters, the paraphrased epistles of K. N. Taylor written in 1962. I have replaced the word hell with destruction as being closer to the original Greek. The propagation of lies has been Satan's chief aim. The appearance in history of a major shift away from the teachings of the founder of Christianity provides evidence of the success of his campaign to mislead. We have referred to the disaster which overcame the Christian Church when Greek ideas were mixed with doctrinal tenets taught by the Apostles. That this occurred is admitted on all sides. The facts of Church history are unmistakable. What is seldom noticed is the effect which the alien ideas have had on the preaching of the Good News message. It is in this direction that we should look for the underlying causes of a divided church. One thing is certain from the writings of Paul. It is that the content of the message of salvation is sacrosanct. Nothing must be permitted to interfere with it. Nothing must be added or taken away. The preaching of, quote, another gospel, or the preaching of, quote, another Jesus, invites the divine curse upon any who would dare so to teach. You'll find that in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4. Paul says so twice to the Galatians. In Galatians 1, 6-9, and the curse is clearly no empty imprecation. For Paul, the perversion of the sacred message is the ultimate horror. His concern over the message proves beyond doubt that the message had a very definite shape and content. All this fuss over doctrine 
seems odd to us in the 20th century, but this may just be a measure of our own uncertainty and indifference. Paul equates the failure to grasp truth with wickedness. Truth also has a strong intellectual content. One cannot dismiss its connection with correct understanding. I quote, because the love of the truth they did not receive in order to be saved, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe the lie. All will be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. That's from 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 10 to 12. Truth for Paul is to be believed, known, and loved. You'll find that in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 12 and 13, 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, and chapter 4, verse 3, 2 Timothy 2, verse 25, Titus 1, and verse 1, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, and chapter 13, verse 8. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 7, compare words of David in Psalm 119, verse 97, and verse 142. I quote, Oh, how I love your law, your Torah. Your law is truth. Paul can speak of his teaching as imparting faith and truth. 1 Timothy 2, verse 7. Conviction is the result of insight and intelligence. So Nigel Turner renders Colossians 2 and verse 2 in his book, A Grammar of New Testament Greek, volume 3. The biblical emphasis on intellect and understanding as a basis for sound faith has been largely lost in much contemporary evangelicalism. According to John, who speaks much about truth, Jesus came to give us, and I quote, an understanding in order to know God. 1 John 5, verse 20. Truth is learned and it is found in the knowledge taught by Christ. Ephesians 4, verse 21. Coming into the knowledge of the truth is the Pauline way of describing conversion to the faith. 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. The gospel is something to be learned. Colossians 1, verse 7. This language, however, is strikingly absent from modern usage, suggesting that for contemporary Christians, truth is not a high priority. After all, the argument goes, would not insistence on truth lead to doctrinal divisions? But what if loss of truth leads to the ruin of the faith as Paul clearly believed? The Christian goal the relevance of all this to our contemporary religious scene may be tested by inviting the average churchgoer to say what he understands as the goal of the Christian's life. The question will not be designed to catch him out, but simply as a test 
of contemporary understanding. It will be most unusual if his answer does not contain some reference to, quote, going to heaven at death. Suppose now that he has given this answer in the middle of the second century, a little more than a hundred years after the death of Jesus. We have one very good piece of evidence of the reaction that it would have provoked in one who considered himself among the staunchest exponents of the Christian faith at that time. In a treatise on the faith, Justin Martyr wrote, I quote, If you have fallen in with some who say they are Christians and who deny the resurrection, but who say that their souls, when they die, are taken to heaven, do not imagine that they are Christians. That's from Justin Martyr's work, Dialogue with Trypho, chapter 80. He was writing around 150 AD. The statement may appear baffling, but it proves that early Christianity rejected as a heresy the notion that at death the soul of the believer departs to heaven. Yet this will be found as the common tenet of millions of adherents to Christianity in the 20th and 21st centuries, and it has been so for many generations. These remarkable facts demand an investigation. The radical shift in thinking about the destiny of the Christian, which has obviously occurred, can be traced to the fusion of Greek philosophy with the biblical faith. The process was a subtle one, and the design behind it was the promotion of the very same lie which Satan had foisted upon the unwary Eve. The serpent had flatly contradicted the divine warning that disobedience would result in death. Genesis 3 verse 4. Now, later he appears as a preacher of, quote, Christianity to announce that man is by nature immortal, that he cannot die. At death, according to this ingenious theory, a man is bound to survive in heaven or hell as a disembodied soul. It will not be difficult to see that this idea undermines the divine message that man has fallen under the death penalty and that there is absolutely no prospect of his gaining immortality apart from incorporation into the divine plan through Christ. The introduction of the Greek idea of the so-called disembodied soul as a part of every person which survives death at once created an entirely new meaning for death. Death no longer meant the cessation of the whole conscious personality. I note that death in the Hebrew Bible means the cessation of consciousness. For that, see Ecclesiastes 9, verses 5 and 10, Psalm 6, verse 5, Psalm 146, verse 4, and Psalm 115, verse 17. The New Testament follows the Old in speaking of death as, quote, sleep. 
You'll find that in John 11, verse 11, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 15, and 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 10, and 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. It now meant, death now meant, man's survival as a disembodied soul in another realm. And a man with an immortal soul cannot surely die. The introduction of this rogue idea that man cannot really die effected a revolution in the Christian view of death. A leading British theologian noted that, quote, the whole of our Western tradition has contrived to give to death an altogether inflated significance. There has been a vastly exaggerated focus on death and the moment of death. So said J.A.T. Robinson in his book on being the church in the world, written in 1960. This remarkable change, quote, began, says J.A.T. Robinson, began when the pages of the New Testament were hardly dry. And it is one of the most remarkable silent revolutions in the history of Christian thought. Little does the church-going public realize that its cherished emphasis on, quote, going to heaven at death does not originate in the Christian scriptures. I quote again from J.A.T. Robinson, The whole of our teaching and hymnology has assumed that you go to heaven, or of course to hell, when you die. This proposition is in clear contradiction with what the Bible says. The Bible nowhere says that we go to heaven when we die, nor does it ever describe death in terms of going to heaven. John Wesley's words, quote, bid Jordan's narrow stream divide and bring us safe to heaven, have no biblical basis. So said J.A.T. Robinson. Speaking in another context, but with equal emphasis on the dire consequences of allowing Greek thinking to dominate Christian theology, another scholar refers to the control exercised by, quote, Neoplatonic philosophy and its claims to constitute an adequate vocabulary for the articulation of theological affirmations. It is not easy to say whether the whole tradition over all the centuries has been a distortion of the gospel. So said Lamberto Schurman in his book The Faces of Jesus, written in 1977. Schumann urges that Protestants place, quote, great emphasis on the Old Testament in catechesis and preaching. A call to reform, which so far seems to have gone unheeded, was issued by Hugh Schoenfield, noting in the words of T.E. Lawrence that Christianity as it developed after the death of the apostles, quote, is a hybrid faith compounded of the Semitic as to its origin and the non-Semitic 
as to its development, he wrote, quote, The point I'm making is that Christianity is not the spiritual successor of Judaism, but a synthesis of Judaism and paganism. As such, it is a corruption of as much significance as the ancient Israelite defection in blending their religion with the cults of the Canaanites. Therefore, it is not for the Jews to embrace Orthodox Christianity, but for the Christians, if they are to be Israelites indeed, as the people of God, to review and purify their beliefs and to recapture what basically they have in common with the Jews, as to say, the messianic vision. That's from Schoenfield's book, The Politics of God. The Hebrews, to whom the divine message was entrusted, had been taught to believe that man was an animated being, sustained, like the animals, by the breath of life. When he died, he returned to the grave and the dust from which he had been formed, and consciousness ceased at that moment. Genesis 3, verse 19. The only hope of further life would be through a resurrection of the whole person from the state of death. You'll find that in Daniel 12, verse 2, Isaiah 26, verse 19, and Psalm 16, verse 10. The divine message had from the start made it clear that Abraham, David, the prophets, and all the faithful must in the future rise from their graves to share in the promised inheritance of land. You find that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, and Matthew 8, verse 11. Even if resurrection had not been spelled out in detail, it was logically necessary, since everyone knew that the patriarchs had died without having inherited their kingdom. Hebrews 11, verses 13 and 39. I note that resurrection is known to the writers of the Old Testament. For example, in 1 Samuel 2, verse 6, Psalm 16, verse 10, Psalm 17, verse 15, Psalm 27, verse 13, Psalm 49, verse 15, Psalm 73, verses 23 and following, Job 19, verses 25 and following, Isaiah 26, verse 19, and Daniel 12, verse 2. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, implies that Abraham understood that he was going to be raised to life. That's in Hebrews 11, verses 13, 19, 35, and 39. Other passages show that the patriarchs were expecting to live again. Romans 4, verse 13, Galatians 3, verse 29, Acts 7, verse 5, and Acts 26, verses 6 and following and John 8, verse 56. A useful article by Norman Logan summarizing the evidence appeared in the Scottish Journal of Theology in 1953.
The patriarchs must indeed therefore reappear by resurrection from death to join the company of all the faithful in the reign of Messiah. So Jesus clearly believed when he uttered these words. I quote, There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being cast out. And they will come from east and west and north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. That's in Luke 13, verse 28 and 29, and Matthew 8, verse 11. What Satan achieved in the early centuries was the suppression of the biblical doctrine of man as needing to attain immortality through resurrection when the Messiah arrived to establish the kingdom. This would be a gift from his Maker. The biblical teaching was made to appear nonsensical if, as the Greeks thought, man was already by nature immortal. The tragedy is that the church was and is so slow to see that its trump card, the divine message containing the promise of resurrection and entrance into the kingdom, was being distorted. The new system of thought taught that the Christian goal was survival as a disembodied soul in heaven rather than participation in the messianic kingdom on earth. The prospect of a harp playing home in heaven is largely inconceivable, and it most effectively diverts attention away from the real biblical goal, which is the return of Jesus Christ to administer the world with justice in company with his followers. The Greek doctrine of the survival of the soul, separated from the body, has so permeated the churches that its members are committed to believing and teaching the falsehood that the dead are really alive in heaven, an idea which is absolutely foreign to the Bible. Plain statements by leading New Testament theologians that, quote, heaven in the Bible is nowhere the destination of the dying, that's from J.T. Robinson in his book, In the End God, and also that the doctrine of the immortality of the soul is diametrically opposed to Scripture, all of this seems to make no impact whatever on what is taught in Sunday schools and pulpits, and especially at funerals throughout the land. The traditional mistake is simply too deeply entrenched and means to stay. Churches constantly comfort the bereaved with their cherished traditional teaching never apparently having given serious thought to its origin. In so doing, they fall prey to ideas which do not originate with the apostles and deprive themselves of the blessing of the vision of a marvelous future for our earth. The promised kingdom of the Bible has nothing whatsoever to do with life as a disembodied soul or spirit in a realm beyond the sky. In other words, our fathers aren't in heaven.
They are sleeping the sleep of death, as Psalm 13, verse 3, and so on say. Until Jesus returns to awaken them, that is, to life in the future kingdom. A classic passage in the book of Daniel provided a proof text for early Christians as they looked forward to the gathering of the faithful of all ages in the coming kingdom. I quote, Many of those who are asleep in the dust of the ground will awake, some to the life of the coming age. That's in Daniel 12, verse 2. This information instructed the believers about the condition of the dead. They were in the ground and sleeping until resurrection day. That this is the authentic Christian understanding of death and the afterlife is shown by the fact that Jesus was an exponent of the sleep of the dead. Hearing of the death of his friend Lazarus, Jesus commented that he was asleep. John 11, verse 11, which he then defined plainly as, quote, dead, according to John 11, verse 14. The only solution was to, quote, wake Lazarus from the sleep of death. I quote, I'm going to arouse him from sleep. John 11, verse 11. The International Critical Commentary notes Jesus' use of exactly the same vocabulary of the sleep of death as found in Job. That's in the International Commentary on John by J. H. Bernard, writing in 1928. This proves again that Jesus derived his thinking about the crucial issues of human destiny from the Hebrew Bible. By an act of power, testifying to the energy of God his Father at work in him, Jesus then called Lazarus dramatically from his tomb to live again. Lazarus did not return from heaven, so to speak. John 11, 43 and 44. According to Jesus, who has a right to have the final word in matters of Christian doctrine, quote, the time is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth. That's John 5, verses 28 and 29. The view of death and resurrection presented by Daniel 12, verse 2, underlies the whole of New Testament teaching about life and death. The state of the dead in Scripture is definitely not conscious existence in heaven, or perpetual hellfire. The dead, as a standard Bible dictionary states, are, quote, unconscious, do no more work, take no account of anything, possess no knowledge nor wisdom, neither have any more portion in anything that's done under the sun. That's a quotation from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, the article on death. And I note this too for a recent excellent account of the biblical doctrine of the sleep of the dead and the annihilation of the wicked. Please see Life, Death and Destiny by a Baptist pastor and Bible professor, Warren Prestige, written in 1998. The Bible Dictionary says this also. It warns that we are influenced 
always more or less by the Greek Platonic idea that the body dies, yet the soul is immortal. Such an idea is utterly contrary to the Israelite consciousness and is nowhere found in the Old Testament. The whole man dies when in death the spirit or soul goes out of a man, not only his body, but his soul also returns to a state of death and belongs to the nether world. Therefore, the Old Testament can speak of a death of one's soul. Genesis 37, verse 21. That quotation was from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. Christians surely ought to reject the influence of Greek Platonic ideas. I note that Jesus' reference in Matthew 10, verse 28, to the soul, which man cannot kill, does not mean that he believed in the immortality of the soul. He goes on to say that the soul is destructible in Gehenna. What man cannot destroy is the life which God recreates in resurrection. Christians then surely ought to reject the influence of Greek Platonic ideas. They should be eager to know the mind of Christ. The New Testament has not abandoned the Hebrew understanding of the state of man in death. It makes no sense that the apostles would depart from the belief of Jesus in John 11, 11 and 14, where he echoes Daniel 12, verse 2, confirming the scriptures in which he had been trained from childhood. What possible justification can there be for the church continuing to embrace ideas from Plato in the name of Jesus? It is a commonplace of the divine scheme that the dead must be resurrected from the grave to join the Messiah in his kingdom, which he will inaugurate at his return. It is only at the resurrection that the faithful will be made alive. They must therefore remain dead until then. The illusion that the dead are already alive with Christ reduces the future resurrection to an afterthought. Tell me, wrote the great reformer William Tyndale, what cause is there of the resurrection if the souls be in heaven? In putting departed souls in heaven, you, and he was talking to the Roman Catholics, you destroy the arguments by which Christ and Paul prove the resurrection. That's from an answer to Sir Thomas More's dialogue, book four. By a strange paradox, the work of Wycliffe and Tyndale, and a host of other distinguished scholars, is held in high esteem, while their teaching, which is in direct conflict with the popular tradition about the afterlife, remains quite unacceptable. Protestants continue to follow the Pope by talking of departed souls at present conscious in heaven or hellfire. The whole fiction of prayer to Mary is built on the same illusion. Such doctrines, which have played a massive role in the piety of sincere believers, could never have gained a foothold if the Hebrew Bible and the teaching of Jesus had been retained as the basis of Christian faith. The kingdom which Jesus is to establish has, in popular thinking, been removed from the earth. It is generally believed that he is now reigning with the saints in heaven. 
the traditional scheme has deprived the Messiah of his promised reign on the throne of David in the future, and the Christians have been deprived of their hope of sharing that inheritance with him. The popular scheme has reduced the great future resurrection event to an appendage in our theological scheme. The resurrection receives only the briefest mention in the creed, reference to the, quote, life of the world to come, found in the Nicene Creed, is understood by many in the absence of a clear explanation as some sort of continued existence in heaven at the point of death. What the early church looked forward to was the life of the coming age of the kingdom of God on earth, following the return of the dead to life via resurrection at Jesus' return. The classic New Testament text is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. I quote, The Christians will be resurrected at Christ's coming. Resurrection would mean gaining their inheritance of the earth, Matthew 5, verse 5. Until that future moment, the Bible declares them to be dead, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35 and verse 52. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. Resurrection and the return of Christ are the object of the passionate longing of New Testament Christians, but the same cannot be said of many believers today. To that extent, they are out of tune with the Bible they claim to be the source of their inspiration. The straightforward scheme of death and a period of waiting in the grave followed by resurrection at Christ's return, was not made clear to me, despite many years of church attendance in the Church of England. The Greek notion of the natural immortality of the soul had swallowed up the powerful biblical emphasis on the future resurrection of the whole man to immortality. Clear teaching about the destiny of man and of our planet continues to be denied to church members as long as the bereaved are comforted by the idea that the dead are not really dead, but actually alive in another realm. By introducing the theory that death is not actually death, but survival in another place, the church dabbled in a form of occultism. Job's question was not, quote, if a man dies, will he continue to live on? but rather, if a man dies, will he come back to life? Job 14, verse 14, which is a very different thing. A Lutheran scholar, reflecting the view of Luther, who himself believed in the sleep of the dead, calls our attention to the radical departure from Scripture represented by popular Christian teaching about death. I note, too, for further documentation of this, fact of the sleep of the dead and for a compendium of biblical and historical information on death as sleep, one should read L. E. Froome's book, The Conditionalist Faith of Our Fathers, in two volumes, written in 1965. An interesting indication of Luther's belief in the sleep of the dead is provided by Tyndale's quotation of his opponent, Sir Thomas More. 
who said, What shall he care how long he live in sin that believeth Luther that he shall after this life feel neither good nor evil in body nor soul until the day of doom? The remark of Thomas More shows that he had a poor understanding of the implications of conditional immortality. The quotation proves that Luther's view of the state of the dead was biblical, but not orthodox. Another quotation, then, of the early church's view of the state of the dead. I quote, The hope of the early church centered on the resurrection of the last day. It is this which first calls the dead into eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15, Philippians 3, verse 21. This resurrection happens to the man and not only to the body. Paul speaks of the resurrection not of the body, but of the dead. This understanding of the resurrection implicitly understands death as also affecting the whole man. Thus, the original biblical concepts have been replaced by ideas from Hellenistic Gnostic dualism. The New Testament idea of the resurrection, which affects the whole man, has had to give way to the immortality of the soul. The last day, then, also loses its significance. For souls have received all that is decisively important long before this. Eschatological, that's to say forward-looking tension, is no longer strongly directed to the day of Jesus' coming. The difference between this and the hope of the New Testament is very great. That's a quotation from Paul Althaus in his book, The Theology of Martin Luther written in 1966. Another leading biblical scholar sums up the scriptural view of man's destiny. I quote, The Bible writers, holding fast to the conviction that the created order owes its existence to the wisdom and love of God, and is therefore essentially good, could not conceive of life after death as a disembodied existence. Quote, We shall not be found naked, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 3, but rather as a renewal under new conditions of the intimate unity of body and soul, which was human life as they knew it. Hence, death was thought of as the death of the whole man, and such phrases as, quote, freedom from death, imperishability or immortality, could only properly be used to describe what is meant by the phrase eternal or living God, quote, who only has immortality, 1 Timothy 6, verse 16. Man does not possess within himself the quality of deathlessness, but must, if he is to overcome the destructive power of death, receive it as the gift of God, quote, who raised Christ from the dead, and put death aside like a covering garment, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 53 and 54. It is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that this possibility for man 
2 Timothy 1 verse 10 has been brought to light and the hope confirmed that the corruption as described in Romans 2 verse 7 which is a universal feature of human life shall be effectively overcome that's from a theological word book of the Bible edited by Alan Richardson while Bible writers quote could not conceive of life after death as a disembodied spirit Christian preachers persist with the dissemination of that very idea with the consequent loss of vital information about the resurrection which will usher in the kingdom of God on earth if as our other expert maintains original biblical concepts have been replaced by teachings from Hellenistic Gnostic dualism such stark facts must be squarely faced by the divided church why is it that when biblical scholarship quote rejects the idea of a purely spiritual immortality so-called of the soul in the afterlife regarding it as an imposition upon the biblical view of personality why then should churches go on teaching that souls survive death the divine message has become hopelessly muddled by the mixing of two conflicting worlds of thought the hebrew view of the divine future cannot be reconciled with platonic greek philosophy this point i note was brilliantly made by oscar kalman in his immortality of the soul or resurrection of the dead in 1958 the apostolic mind is clear on this question of alien philosophy how different would have been the course of church history had paul's words been heeded quote see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception colossians 2 verse 8 learning the biblical language if the message of the divided churches has become a feeble echo of the vibrant proclamation of the new testament christians it is because tradition has interfered with the divine message which the church is commissioned to preach the intrusion of greek concepts which cannot be reconciled with the hebrew thought world of the bible has made it difficult for the reader of scripture to understand the apostles a breakdown in communication has occurred even our translations of the bible have played their part in the conspiracy unconscious on the part of the translators no doubt to conceal information for though translation enables the early christians to speak to us in our own english tongue their words have been mediated to us by translators who were themselves steeped in the post-biblical greek tradition of all forms of commentary on the divine word a translation is the most subtle the translator stands between us and the original message of the apostles it is possible that he will fail to transmit the original faithfully this can happen when a scholar does not appreciate the jewish ways of thinking which are typical of new testament writers 
Fortunately, modern commentators often provide background data about recurring phrases in the New Testament which illuminate original meanings. The greatest service has been done by those scholars who warn about the dangers of trying to read the Bible without being immersed in the Jewish environment in which the biblical documents were written. James Dunn's criticism of the way Paul's writings have been mishandled, quote, for most of Christian history deserves the widest hearing. What Dr. James Dunn says about reading Paul applies to our reading of the Bible as a whole. I quote, the first task of exegesis explaining the Bible is to penetrate as far as possible inside the historical context or contexts of the author and of those for whom he wrote. So much of this involves the taken for granteds of both author and addressees. Where a modern reader is unaware of or unsympathetic to these shared assumptions and concerns, it will be impossible to hear the text as the author intended it to be heard and assumed it would be heard. In this case, a major part of that context is the self-understanding of Jews and Judaism in the first century and of Gentiles sympathetic to Judaism. Since most of Christian history and scholarship, regrettably, has been unsympathetic to that self-understanding, if not downright hostile to it, a proper appreciation of Paul in his interaction with that self-understanding has been virtually impossible. That's Dr. James Dunn's commentary on Romans in the Word Biblical Commentary series. The Nature of Man A primary question for Christians concerns our destiny as human beings. The basis of a good understanding is laid in the book of Genesis. What we've been learning in church, however, has tended to obstruct rather than promote the biblical facts. The trouble begins early on in the divine record. The Greek philosophical tradition, which early in the second century mixed itself with the original faith, has done much to prevent us knowing who we are. We get off to a poor start unless we fully grasp the account of the creation of man. We are concerned, first of all, to track down the meaning of the word, quote, soul. Without any kind of formal instruction, we seem to imbibe the notion that soul must mean an immortal part of man which survives death. Such an idea, however, misrepresents the biblical point of view. As a modern commentator points out, and I quote, immortal means death-proof. To believe in the immortality of the soul is to believe that though John Brown's body lies a mouldering in the grave, his soul goes marching on simply because marching on is the nature of souls, just as the way producing apples is the nature of apple trees. Bodies die, so the theory goes, but souls don't. True or false, this is not the biblical view 
although many who ought to know better assume it is. That's from Friedrich Büchner's 1 Corinthians Mastering the Basics, written in 1986. Unfortunately, our King James Version of the Bible conceals the proper understanding of soul most effectively and prevents us from seeing that soul, far from being the possession of man alone, belongs in fact equally to all the animals. Here is what the biblical text really says. I quote, And God said that the waters teem with swarming creatures, living souls. And God created great whales and every living soul which moves with which the waters teem. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living soul after its kind, cattle and creeping things and living creatures of the earth after its kind. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every living creature of the field and every fowl of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living soul, that was its name. That's from Genesis 1, verses 20 and 21, and verse 24, and from Genesis 2, verse 7, and Genesis 1, verse 30. I note that the Hebrew word nefesh, or soul, means living creature. Souls can be dead. Number six, verse six. Soul is also the equivalent of person. Thus, eight souls survived the flood. First Peter 3, verse 20. A.R. Johnson points out that the authorized and the revised versions are, quote, misleading if soul suggests any such dichotomy as that which finds early emphasis in Orphic myth and Platonic philosophy. The term nefesh is obviously being used to indicate not something conceived of as one, albeit the superior part of man's being, but the complete personality as a unified manifestation of vital power. It represents what Pedersen has called the grasping of a totality. That's from the book, The One and the Many in Israelite Conception of God, written in 1961. Later, the account of the flood describes all living creatures as souls. And God said, quote, this is the sign of the covenant between me and you and between every living soul which is with you. I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living soul of all flesh. Genesis 9, verse 12. And in the Proverbs, I quote, The righteous man cares for the soul of his beast. Proverbs 12, verse 10. No wonder, then, that the New Testament speaks of marine creatures as having souls. Revelation 8, verse 9. These simple facts establish at once that the soul in the Bible is the common designation of man and animal. 
they are equally conscious beings or, quote, souls. The Hebrews might also say that man and animal have conscious being or soul. In neither case is there the slightest hint that soul has anything to do with innate immortality. The very opposite is true. At death, the man who is formed from the dust of the ground returns to the dust. Genesis 3 verse 19. And at the flood, quote, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Genesis 7 verse 22. Man and beast alike. The fundamentally important implication of our discovery is that immortality is not something we possess by nature. It must be acquired, and it can be gained by no other means than through contact with the saving message and resurrection. Once we establish this fact, we shall begin to read the New Testament with a clear sense of its passionate longing for the return of Jesus to raise the faithful dead. The consistent teaching of the Hebrew Bible is that at death, man falls into unconscious sleep. He joins his ancestors in the world of the dead, which the Hebrews call Sheol, with its Greek equivalent Adis or Hades. I note that Abraham joined his fathers in death, Genesis 15, verse 15, Genesis 25, verse 8. Jacob lay down with his fathers, Genesis 47, verse 30. Moses was told to, quote, sleep with your fathers, Deuteronomy 31, verse 16. Inactivity and sleeping in the dust describe death in Psalm 6, verse 5, Psalm 30, verse 9, Psalm 115, verse 17, Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4, Job 14, 12, Ecclesiastes 9.5, Isaiah 26 verse 19, and Daniel 12 verse 2. For the New Testament view, see John 5 verse 28 and 29, John 11.11 11 and 14, and Acts 2 verse 29 and 34, and Acts 13 verse 36. De Leach, in his celebrated commentary on the Bible, on the Hebrew Bible, says that the view of death as sleep pervades the Old Testament, and he says this in his commentary on the Old Testament in volume 6. The consistent teaching of the Hebrew Bible is that at death, man falls into unconscious sleep. He joins his ancestors in the world of the dead, which the Hebrews call Sheol, with its Greek equivalent, Adis or Hades. This is not a place of punishment and rewards meted out at death, but a place of complete inactivity. Ecclesiastes 9 verses 5 and 10 establish the proper notion of the condition of man after he dies. Quote, the living know that they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor do they any longer have a reward for their memory is forgotten. There is no activity or planning or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. 
These are the verses, along with many others with the same message, which ought to be heard at funeral services. This would allow for the stupendous prospect of resurrection in the future to be proclaimed as the only genuine hope for rescue from death. Attention would immediately be riveted on the future arrival of the Son of God in power. The biblical scheme would then cease to be neutralized by the very confusing idea that the dead have already achieved glory even though Jesus has not yet returned to resurrect and reward them. I note that Jesus taught that rewards are given not at death, but at the second coming. Matthew 16, verse 27. Jesus is going to wake the dead from the sleep of death, as Daniel 12, verse 2 lays out. At present, the incompatible Hebrew and Greek ideas struggle with each other to produce an uneasy confusion, a blurring of the Christian hope, and a loss of the good news of the coming kingdom. The Greek view of man's innate immortality must be banished once and for all before the Hebrew view of man's destiny on which the teaching of Jesus is founded can be grasped. When we see that the death of man is the death of his whole person, the cessation of his consciousness, not his survival as a disembodied spirit or soul in another realm, then our minds will be turned towards our only hope, the hope for the resurrection of the faithful of all the ages. As in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 23, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 and following, Revelation 11, verses 15 to 18, and Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6. The very unbiblical prospect of life as a disembodied spirit will be replaced by the glorious expectation of receiving a body empowered by divine spirit, one which cannot die. The glorious future promised in Christ is the life of a resurrected individual functioning as an administrator with the Messiah in his kingdom. That life can be conferred only by the Father, quote, who alone has immortality. That's from 1 Timothy 6.16. The reference is to the Father sending Jesus back to rule in the future. That life can be conferred only by the Father who alone has immortality, i.e. inherently. Christianity is therefore a religion whose goal is the acquisition of immortality, and Christians are those who, quote, by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, life in the coming age. Romans 2 verse 7. To say that a human being already has immortality as a departed conscious spirit makes a considerable nonsense of the Bible. It is, however, a biblical teaching that the living believers can taste through the Spirit something of the life of the future kingdom. John 6, verse 47, Ephesians 1, verse 14, and 2 Corinthians 1, 
verses 21 and 22. I note that the reception of the Holy Spirit now does not, however, enable Christians to escape the first death which is appointed to all men. Hebrews 9, verse 27. If the Bible to which Jesus appealed taught that all the dead were in the world of the dead, which was certainly not hellfire or heaven, how is it that the churches seem to have forgotten this fundamental Christian teaching? Why is it that the dead are now supposed to depart to heaven or hellfire the moment they die, quite apart from a resurrection? Something has evidently happened to change the way we think about death. The prophets of Israel expected to leave the world of the dead only by resurrection at the last day. Their hope, as expressed by David, was, quote, God will redeem my soul, that's to say me, from the power of Sheol, Psalm 49:15. The notion that man could live on as a disembodied soul or gain his promised inheritance without first residing in the world of the dead was unknown to these writers. The legend which undermined the resurrection, unknown to most churchgoers, Protestants and Catholics have accepted most uncritically a fanciful legend claiming that Jesus altered the conditions of the dead while he himself was in the world of the dead. Protestants often chide Roman Catholics for subscribing to the doctrine of the bodily assumption of Mary to heaven as Queen of Heaven and Mediatrix. No biblical support can be quoted for this revolutionary teaching, but Protestants, as well as Roman Catholics, hold to a tradition about the state of the dead which can be traced to an apocryphal story contained in the non-biblical gospel of Nicodemus. This document, which relies on a tradition dating from the second century, or perhaps an even earlier time, and also the ascension of Isaiah, which may date from the end of the first century, teaches that, quote, many of the righteous will ascend with Jesus on the third day. The Gospel of Nicodemus, then, tells the story of Jesus descending to Hades, or Sheol, in order to grant immortality to those who had died in previous ages. The same legend appears in several documents. The second century Odes of Solomon also includes an account of Jesus' activity in Hades. To the dead, Jesus is made to say, Come forth, you who have been afflicted, and receive joy and immortal life. That's from the Odes 31, verse 1 and following, cited in the article Descent into Hades, found in the Dictionary of the Apostolic Church. As historians report, here we have the earliest appearance of the detailed doctrine of the descent into hell, which is found in the Gospel of Nicodemus, and was afterwards universally prevalent in Christian circles. A Latin version of the Gospel of Nicodemus reports the words of two individuals who had been freed from death. Quotation, We rose with Christ from hell, and he himself raised us from the dead 
and from this you may know that the gates of death and darkness are destroyed, and the souls of the saints are set free and have ascended to heaven with Christ. The effect of this attractive but very misleading story was to destroy at a blow the Hebrew Bible's teaching that deliverance from death and the gaining of immortality would come only by resurrection at the end of the age. Daniel 12 verse 2, predicting that the dead would arise only when the kingdom arrived, compare that with 1 Corinthians 15 verse 23. 1 Corinthians 15 was rendered obsolete by the new theory. The legend altered the whole meaning of death, for while Hades, according to the Bible, is a place of complete inactivity, where, quote, the dead do not praise God, Psalm 115, verse 17, and where they wait until the return of Christ, it was presented in this early folklore as a place where Christ was actively preaching to and delivering the dead. I note that the account of a resurrection of certain, quote, sleeping saints in Matthew 27, verses 52 and 53, certainly does not hint that all the dead from Old Testament times were raised, nor that those who came back to life gained immortality or were removed to heaven. Such an idea is contradicted by Acts 2, verses 29 and 34, which state that David was still dead and buried after the resurrection. The new twist found in these apocryphal documents had a devastating effect on the Christian understanding of life after death. It meant that the dead could henceforth escape Hades and move immediately at death to paradise. And later tradition spoke of heaven as the immediate destination of righteous, disembodied souls. Although the legendary Gospel of Nicodemus seems to have taught an immediate bodily resurrection for the faithful Old Testament dead, consequent on Jesus' descent into Hades, later tradition recognized that this was a flat contradiction of the New Testament teaching that the dead will not be raised until the last day. Eventually, some kind of compromise was arrived at with the assistance of the Greek doctrine of the natural immortality of the soul. The souls of the righteous, it was said, went immediately to heaven, or according to another theory, to paradise, as a compartment of Hades. Since the time when Jesus had freed the patriarchs from death, but the soul, so the theory went, would need to rejoin its body for a final resurrection at the end of the age. This has been the view of the great majority of Protestants since the 16th century Reformation and before that of believers since the time of the Church Fathers. It was only the doctrine of an intermediate purgatory which Protestants discarded from the Roman Catholic Church system at the Reformation. Saddled with a non-biblical tradition that Jesus delivered the patriarchs while he himself was in the heart of the earth, Matthew 12, 40, Protestants are left to search for biblical evidence for the departure of souls to heaven at death.
There is no such evidence, despite the claim of one of the creeds that, quote, Christ descended into Hades and abolished it for all believers. That's from the, I'll say it again, that's from the so-called formula of Concord. John Pearson, famous for his work on Christian creeds, did not himself accept the doctrine that Jesus freed the saints from Hades, but admitted, quote, this is the opinion generally received in the schools and delivered as the sense of the Church of God in all ages, but though it were not so general as the schoolmen would persuade us, yet it is certain that many of the fathers did so understand it. Eusebius, Cyril, Ambrose, and Jerome are cited in favor of the idea that souls go immediately to heaven, while Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Hilary, Gregory of Nyssa, and others taught that the faithful do not go immediately to heaven, but to Abraham's bosom, into so-called paradise, where the Old Testament faithfully remain also until the resurrection. As a leading Bible dictionary says, Ephesians 4, verses 7 to 10, says nothing of any work of Christ or any possibilities for the dead in Hades. The same authority confirms our central thesis that New Testament teaching about the future, quote, is in relation to the Hebrew faith and has its point of issue in the principles of the Old Testament. The loss of the Hebrew view of death and the afterlife is therefore a major doctrinal disaster needing to be set right. Paul indeed recognizes that it's only at the sound of the seventh trumpet, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 52, Revelation 11 verse 15, marking the resurrection of Christ's return to the earth, it is only then that Hades will be overcome and death swallowed up. I note that in 1 Corinthians 15.55, Paul cites Hosea 13, verse 14, which speaks of the moment when Hades finally loses its sting and applies the text to the future resurrection of all the faithful at the parousia. Compare with that 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. If the Hebrew Bible had remained an authoritative source of divine teaching about the nature of man and the plan for the recovery of his immortality, there would be no confusion over what happens when we die. But the example of Jesus, who upheld the Hebrew Bible always, was not followed, and Christians from the second century fell for various myths and legends. Compare 2 Timothy 4 verse 4. These legends have ever since been embedded in the Christian tradition. The removal of the patriarchs from the world of the dead at the time of Christ's resurrection was unknown to Peter, who spoke of David being still dead and buried after the ascension of Jesus. Acts 2 verses 34 and 39. The writer to the Hebrews knows nothing of the idea that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had risen from the dead. They were to be brought back to life 
in company with all the faithful when Jesus came in the power of the kingdom. You'll find that in Hebrews 11, verse 13 and 39, and Hebrews 12, verse 28. The unfortunate antedating of the moment of Christian glory, a false teaching akin to the one which Paul identified as a potential cancer in the church, 2 Timothy 2, verses 17 and 18, began a process by which the biblical view of the future was dismantled. The mixing of competing ideas created a situation in which many are unable to distinguish tradition from biblical truth. Persistently rejecting the Old Testament view of the death of the whole man, they bend isolated New Testament verses in an attempt to force them into line with received tradition. It is common to hear churchgoers quote a portion of one verse of an extended discussion of the resurrection in 2 Corinthians 5. Quote, absence from the body and present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8. This is thought to be a proof that Paul was talking of immortal souls going to heaven at death, but this is not at all what he had in mind, as becomes clear if we read the whole context carefully. Paul had already taught the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 that the dead sleep until the resurrection destined to happen at the coming of Christ. Those who belong to Christ will be resurrected at his coming. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 23. Paul uses the phrase, wake up, as a synonym for resurrect, as in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 and 14, and verses 15, 16, 17, and 20. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul has not confused his readers by teaching a different idea, survival as a soul without a body. Such a concept was entirely alien to Paul's Hebrew way of thinking about death. His subject is still the resurrection. Quote, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 14. What Paul was longing for was to be, quote, clothed with a dwelling, a new body, from heaven, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 2. I note that Paul did not say he would be in heaven. And this replacing of our present bodies would mean a replacing of them with immortal spiritual bodies. This great event was the resurrection. To be, quote, absent from the body and present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, is the hope that we will meet Christ when he comes to raise us from death. Jesus is coming back to bring the dead to life. We're not going to him at death. The Bible knows of only one way to escape death, that is by being resurrected at the return of Christ, and those who are still alive when he comes will need only to be transformed by receiving their new body. To be, quote, with the Lord, means to be with Jesus through resurrection at Christ's return. 
So Paul had explained to the Thessalonians when he elaborated on the divine arrangements by which the saints would be brought into the presence of the returning Lord. Quote, in this way, that's to say by resurrection and transformation, we shall be always with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 17. The future of immortalized believers. One of the first tasks for the immortals thus created through the resurrection from the dead, not by never dying at all, will be to rid the world of the nightmare of nuclear war. Christians are to gain immortality for a purpose. They're going to administer the world and establish a just order. Isaiah 32 verse 1. Paul was surprised that some of his converts had lost sight of their goal. Quote, Don't you realize that the saints are going to govern the world? 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2. Moffat catches the sense with, Don't you know that the saints are to manage the world? If the world is to come under your jurisdiction, that's from the Moffat translation. The Corinthians were actually taking each other to court before unbelievers. Paul was indignant. How nonsensical it was for Christians to get involved in litigation. After all, they were to be the arbiters of a new world order and, as the royal family in training, ought to be demonstrating a fitness for their future office. It is reported that the world now spends every two weeks on weapons of mass destruction what it spends in a whole year on feeding, housing, clothing and educating the population of the world. Facts like these can only mean that the world has come to the end of its tether. Nothing could be more lunatic than the squandering of such massive resources to threaten the lives of foreign men, women and children, as well as those unborn whom we have never met and whom we bear no personal grudge. A new system empowered to eradicate the insanity of international war will become a reality in the future kingdom of God. For this information, please consult Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4, Psalm 46 verse 9, Zechariah 9 verse 10, and Isaiah 32 verse 17. A crucial question facing the churches is their relationship to the war machine. They will sooner or later have to face the uncomfortable fact that participation in war must involve the destruction not only of their enemies, but their fellow Christians, some of whom will have chosen to be non-combatants. In war, the church will inevitably, as so often in the past, be divided against itself killing its own members. As long as Christians are committed to a policy inescapable, if they bear arms, of destroying their own brethren in enemy lands, they continue to demonstrate their belief in the priority of the national state over the Christian state. The international Christian nation, the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16, is supposed to be the nucleus of the disciples of the Messiah 
preparing for service in the coming divine rule. The present participation of the church in war is a denial of her role as an international world community, the microcosm of the divine kingdom. The churches should consider very seriously the fact that there is no instance of a Christian bearing arms for the first 170 years of Christian history. Is it too much to ask that churches must require of their members at baptism that they renounce the right to take the lives of their fellow Christians? At present, Christianity is often defined as a noble form of patriotism. Such an idea conflicts with the New Testament teaching that the kingdoms of this world are not the kingdom of God and will not be until the return of the Messiah. Revelation 11 verses 15 to 18. The life of the age to come. There are two familiar New Testament phrases which, as presently translated, stand in the way of a clear view of the Christian identity and destiny as Jesus and the apostles understood it. The first of these is the word everlasting or, quote, eternal life. That is not exactly what the early Christians had in mind when they described the ultimate purpose of the faith. The phrase, quote, forever in the Hebrew Old Testament was often understood to refer to a period of time in the remote future. With that period of time, the promise is contained in the divine messages to Abraham and David were associated. When Daniel put on record his vision of the end of the current era of history, he described the resurrection of those who were asleep in the dust of the earth as, quote, awakening to everlasting life. Daniel 12, verse 2. Our translators were thinking as Greeks, not as Hebrews, when they gave us that rendering. A Hebrew would have looked forward not to, quote, everlasting life, but to, quote, the life of the coming age. There was more history to come when God changed the course of events forever. The whole hope of the prophets was based on what one day would come to be on earth an age of universal peace under the Messiah. Appropriately, the Old Testament writers had used a particular word to describe that future era. The word was olam, the remote future age. It was customary for Jesus and his contemporaries, in common with the rabbis, to contrast the present age, ha'olam hazeh, this age, of human government contrasted with the future age ha'olam haba the age to come of the messiah and his kingdom thus when daniel describes the resurrection of the faithful at the end of the current age he sees the dead receiving the life of the age to come daniel 12 verse 2 that is what every devout hebrew desired Daniel himself was invited to rest in death until the time came for him to take up his assigned position at the end of the age. Daniel 12 verse 13. 
It is well known that the New Testament takes this language over from the Old Testament and Judaism. Jesus spoke constantly of the life of the coming messianic age and used the expression interchangeably with the kingdom of God. For example, in Matthew 19:16, compared with verse 24 and many other texts, John uses the phrase life of the coming age rather than kingdom of God. Exceptions would be in John 3, verse 3 and 5, and John 18, verse 36. But the meaning is exactly the same as between life of the coming age and the kingdom of God. The translation everlasting life is not entirely inaccurate, for the life conferred in the coming age will indeed be life without end. Nevertheless, the Hebrew phrase is much clearer since it conveys vital information about when and where that life will be attained and reminds us constantly that history is divided into two ages. The, quote, life of the age to come will be enjoyed in full in the messianic age to come. It was to be in the age to come that men and women would inherit the kingdom. What a flood of light would be thrown on our Christian documents if, when we read about everlasting life and eternal life, and I ask in passing, why did the King James Version give us two expressions when the Greek for both is zoe eonios? So, we would think with Jesus and of the life of the coming kingdom if we use the phrase life of the coming age that life is tasted now in advance through the spirit as nigel turner observed quote it would be imprecise to translate aeonios as eternal but our translations continue to do so this phrase means belonging to the future age or dispensation. That's a quotation from Nigel Turner's book, Christian Words, written in 1980. The same adjective, aeonios, describes the fire which destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah thousands of years ago, as in Jude 7. That fire was not everlasting, but similar to the supernatural punishment which God will inflict at the return of Christ. How very misleading also is the translation in Matthew 25, verse 46, where the wicked are said to go into, quote, everlasting punishment. Fortunately, standard commentaries come to the rescue. I quote, the adjective aeonios in Matthew 25, verse 46, means belonging to a future age. It does not in itself mean unending. That's a quotation from the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges. What Jesus described was, quote, the punishment which excludes one from the coming age. The popular promotion of eternal torment on the basis of this verse has no support in the original Greek language, which is strongly colored by the Hebrew mind of the New Testament writers. The prevailing expectation about the fate of the wicked is that they will be annihilated. 
Proverbs 10, verse 25, Obadiah, verse 16, Isaiah chapter 33, verse 12, Isaiah 41, verse 11 and 12, Psalm 118, verse 12, Matthew 3, verse 12, and 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9. Knowing nothing of our later Greek tradition, Jesus never spoke of going to heaven. He offered his followers the inheritance of the earth. Matthew 5, verse 5. As the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and David. Abraham had once lived in, quote, the land of the promise, but had never owned it. He had died without receiving it. It was obvious then that Abraham must one day rise from the dead in order to enter his inheritance with all the faithful. God had spoken, that's to say, made promises, quote, to our fathers, to Abraham, for the coming age. Luke 1, verse 55. The Greek there, istoniona, means literally, for the age. The inheritance was the kingdom of God, which, as James said, God has promised to those who love him. James 2, verse 5. Jesus also looked forward to the age of the coming kingdom of God. His language is confined within the framework of the Hebrew outlook on the future. He does not speak of, quote, heaven at death. He never says, quote, if you want to go to heaven, or so-and-so is, quote, in heaven. He and the apostles speak of treasure being prepared now with God in heaven. Matthew 6, verse 20, Matthew 19, verse 21. A reward is reserved in heaven. You'll find that in 1 Peter 1, verse 4, and compare with it Matthew 5, verse 12. Your reward is great in heaven. That's to say, reserved in heaven in view of the future. This is a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1.5, that's to say at Christ's return to the earth, Christians should follow Jesus and Paul and talk of, quote, inheriting or entering the kingdom. As in Matthew 25, verse 34, Galatians 5, verse 21, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, and Ephesians 5, verse 5. A revolutionary change of language is called for if we are to follow the example of Jesus. The use of Jesus' own words by Christians would have a remedial effect on the spiritual malaise created by the adoption of non-biblical language to describe life after death, with tremendous implications for the current confusion of denominationalism. Professor Nigel Turner wrote, I quote, the language of the church had better be the language of the New Testament. To proclaim the gospel with new terminology is hazardous when much of the message and valuable overtones that are implicit in the New Testament might be lost forever. Most of the distortions and dissensions that have vexed the church, observed the late Dean of York, where these have touched theological understanding, have arisen through the insistence 
of sects or sections of the Christian community upon using words which are not found in the New Testament. That's a quotation from Nigel Turner's book, Christian Words. He warns equally against making the message, quote, modern. The two ages. Our versions render us another disservice when they sometimes speak of the world to come instead of the age to come. The world to come gives scope for the non-biblical idea that there's a heavenly realm to be entered at death. Such an idea is misleading. It draws a veil over the biblical goal, the hope of the divine message, which is the arrival in history of a glorious golden age that will supersede the current age of human misrule. It is to that age that the Christian aspires. It is in that age that he will receive the life of the coming age by being resurrected at the return of Christ. It will be most revealing for readers of the King James Version, as well as other translations, to read life of the coming age or life in the coming age every time they encounter eternal or everlasting life. In this way, the atmosphere of the original faith may be recovered. A similar loss of clarity has occurred where translations and commentaries speak of the end of time. Salvation in the Bible is not beyond time and space. It will be granted fully, quote, at the end of the age, when the new age will begin. It is at that end time, or time of the end, that Christians can expect the coming of the kingdom, not at the end of time. Jesus' disciples questioned him about the end of the age, not the end of the world. That's in Matthew 24, verse 3, and Matthew 28, verse 20. The time referred to is the coming of the kingdom. See also Matthew 13, verses 39 and 40, where the same event is called the harvest. The King James helped to obstruct a clear understanding with its translation of Revelation 10, verse 6, which reads, There shall be time no longer. The mistake has been corrected in modern versions, which tell us that, quote, there will be no more delay. By a strange irony, the otherwise divided churches are united in their view of the Christian hope as a departure to heaven, as a disembodied soul. There can be no more salutary shock than to awaken to the fact that such an idea is inconceivable to the Hebrew Christian writers of the Bible. So say also our best scholars, of whom we quote just two examples. I quote, Paul evidently could not contemplate immortality apart from resurrection. For him, a body of some kind was essential to personality. That's from F.F. F. Bruce's article, Paul on Immortality. 
in the Scottish Journal of Theology, written in 1971, F.F. F. Bruce, well known to evangelicals, came to believe in the unconsciousness of the dead. Commenting on 2 Corinthians 5, Bruce refers to the instantaneous changeover from the old body to the new. I quote, Paul here envisages that there will be no interval of conscious nakedness between the one and the other, the old body and the resurrection body. The tension created by the postulated interval between death and resurrection might be relieved today if it were suggested that in the consciousness of the departed believer there is no interval between the dissolution and the investiture with the resurrection body, however long an interval might be measured by the calendar of earthbound human history. That's from Paul, the Apostle of the Heart Set Free, by F. F. Bruce. It makes little sense that we should continue to comfort ourselves and our children with a hope for the dead so incompatible with the Bible, and all in the name of Christianity. The recognition that a large quantity of Greek philosophy has been imported into the faith and forced onto the New Testament records will be the first step to the recovery of apostolic Christianity. The words of a French scholar of the Bible deserve the widest publicity. I quote, Across the pages of the Old and New Testaments, the clear waters of revealed truth flow like a majestic river. It is God who only has immortality, offering to men and communicating to the believer his divine imperishable life. But paralleling this stream flows the muddy river of pagan philosophy, which is that of human soul, of divine essence, eternal, pre-existing the body, and surviving it. After the death of the apostles, the two streams merged to make unity of the troubled waters. Little by little, the speculation of human philosophy mixed with divine teaching. Now the task of evangelical theology is to disengage the two incompatible elements, to dissociate them, to eliminate the pagan element which has installed itself as a usurper in the center of traditional theology, to restore in value the biblical element which only is true, which alone conforms to the nature of God and of man, his creature. That's a quotation from Alfred Vaucher in his book Le Problème de l'Immortalité, written in 1957. The path of wisdom would seem to lie in a personal re-examination of belief in the light of the biblical documents. The Bible recommends a diligent search for understanding. It commends those who daily meditate in the divine revelation. Jesus himself was a devoted student of scripture, immersed as were other rabbis 
in the sacred writings of Israel. Throughout the New Testament, the apostles promised a resurrection to glory to those who have expressed their faith in Jesus by repentance, baptism as responsible adults, and belief and obedience to the divine message or gospel of the kingdom as presented by the Messiah and the apostles. Salvation is offered on quite specific terms, belief in the gospel as Jesus and the apostles preached it. A clear definition of that message should be an urgent priority for all truth-seeking believers.